0: We invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. This is chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. Not through the end of the chapter, but 1 through 8. And before we read this word from God, let us go to our Lord and ask Him for His help. Divine Spirit, illumine to us the words of our great Lord. Show us the wealth of glory that lies beneath these old familiar stories. Teach us the depths of meaning hidden in the songs of Zion. Raise us to heights of aspiration reached by the wings of the prophet. Lift us to the summit of faith that is trod by the feet of the apostles. Open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. Amen. Hear now the word of God, Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he has told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thus far the reading of God's holy word And may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. As Mark sets out to land this plane that is the gospel of Mark, he ends on a very high note. He takes us upward to... The exaltation of Christ, seen powerfully in the resurrection of the Christ. Because you can have no cross without the resurrection, nor a resurrection without the cross, he has been flying up to this altitude this entire time, dropping hints here and there. And even recording explicitly Jesus' words of prophecy three times that Jesus will suffer, die, and will rise from the dead. In this second-to-last sermon from Mark's masterpiece, we come to the glorious resurrection. The resurrection confirms the word of Christ and causes hearts to tremble. Look again with me at verses 1 and 2. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. You'll remember just before these verses... Mark's words that the women saw where the body of Jesus was laid. They had taken note of the place. They had taken note of of Joseph and where the body was going to be placed. The resurrection account is a favorite among critics to cast aspersions on the truthfulness of the word of God. And they'll say things like this, the Gospels cannot even get this story straight. There are so many contradictions. This story, which presumably is the most important story of all of Christianity, is riddled with contradiction. And so why believe this story? Why have hope? Of course, there are differences in the gospel accounts. We don't have time to harmonize Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But there are no contradictions It's rather a matter of emphasis. You'll notice, for instance, that one angel was mentioned, but other gospel writers will mention more than one because Mark is emphasizing one angel, the one who's speaking. So there are differences. There are differences even with who came, with uh, the women. We see that John mentions only Mary Magdalene. Matthew mentions Mary and another woman. Luke mentions Mary Magdalene, Johanna, Mary, the mother of James, and other women. And Mark, we have the three women who were at the cross, now at the tomb. Just a matter of emphasis, a matter of the purpose for each narrative, as far as who is included. We see that this takes place when the Sabbath was passed. This is to say, then, that this took place on Saturday evening. There was a brief period of time for the market to be open during which the women would buy and prepare the spices that they might anoint the body of Jesus with these. Again, each gospel writer focuses on a different period of the day as well. In John's gospel, Mary came to the tomb, it says, very early while it was still dark. Luke says that the women at early dawn went to the tomb. Matthew says it was toward the dawn, and Mark says when the sun had risen. These aren't contradictions, but we take these together and we see that as these women arrive, as the darkness turns into light, as the night turns into day, as new mercies await, the light of this first day of the week is Sunday. This is marked day three. Jesus said three days, In three days he will rise. Now, if we put our own modern way of counting, uh, telling time, we say, well, here is another contradiction. I mean, clearly Jesus was not in the tomb for 72 hours. But that's not how they counted time. That's not how they told time. Any part of the day was considered a day. So you have Friday, you have all of Saturday, and you have part of Sunday. There you have it, three days, just as Jesus said. But why did these women go to the tomb? Why did they go to the tomb in the first place? must be said here that they didn't go to the tomb because they thought that he had risen. They went to the tomb because they didn't think he was risen. They went to the tomb because... They thought that he lay there buried. So as much as we have commended the women last Sunday on their devotion to the Lord, they still did not think that he would have risen. They were expecting to see a dead body. They saw him lay buried. That's what they thought. The night before, they had again noticed Joseph's work, and they wanted to add to it. They wanted to prepare even more, they wanted to anoint, they wanted to, well, offset that foul scent of what they thought would be a decaying, corrupting body. Because remember, these women cared for the body of Christ. They were devoted to Him. They went with Him. They were even there at His triumphal entry. They stuck with Him. And the body of Christ was too precious to them so they wanted to care for it. There's a big problem. It's a stone. <laughs> this big stone that is covering the tomb. Now, there was a groove into which the, the, the stone would be rolled, and, of course, it's easier to get the, the stone in the groove than out of the groove, regardless of how many women would exert their The strength to to get it out that's a big problem for them mark the man of action doesn't deal with the roman guards doesn't deal with the seal on the tomb he doesn't tell us any about that anything about that you get that from other gospel writers what you get from mark is the the anxious spirit of the women what you get from them is an oh no we forgot about that stone that's a really big problem how are we going to anoint the body of Jesus if we can't get to the tomb? The stone's covered, the tomb. How do we get in there? We want to get in there, we want to repair his body. You can just picture them walking again as dark turns into day with their heads down and, and they look up and behold, the stone has moved. Now, Matthew tells us how it was moved. There was an earthquake. An angel of the Lord moved the stone away. Mark doesn't tell us that. Mark wants us merely to marvel. Merely. That's a bad choice. Mark wants us to marvel that the stone was moved. It's a big problem. And all of a sudden, no, there isn't. Stone's gone. Of course, there is then a, a bigger problem. There's no body in there. What happened to Jesus' body? We already see then, dear ones, that God wants to grip us by the story itself. It's not that the particulars of a story do not matter. If there are no particulars, then there really is no story. But Mark wants us here to live in this moment, to experience the narrative as it is unfolding, to marvel at the exciting surprise of good news, terrifying Surprise as well, but exciting. You know, you know what it's like to be caught up by the newest John Grisham legal thriller. I'm sure you do. Or to gobble up the Lord of the Rings in a day or two. I'm sure some of you know. Or just to be unable to, be, to, to put down that Agatha Christie mystery novel. Or Take whatever book you want. You, you start in the morning. You neglect most, if not all, of your duties for the day. And you carry through the night. Who needs sleep when you have this story right before your eyes? You kiss your your spouse goodnight and you keep reading through the night. Because you want to know what happens next. Of course, those words are not going to march outside the book while your eyes are shut. But they might as well have done so. You just have to be taken into the story. You have to live through the characters. You have to experience the whole story and the conclusion, especially for yourself. Just be enthralled in the narrative. This is, dear ones, literally the very moment that the 39 Old Testament books are leading us to. This is what Matthew in 27 chapters and Luke in 23, John in 19, and Mark in 15 chapters all bring us to. This very moment. Stone has moved. This is a reminder for us not to grow cold in our reading of the Bible. Now, many of us will decide to read the Bible in, in, a, in a given year, maybe two years, and then we become very familiar with certain stories, and certain passages become our favorite stories. But if we're not careful, we, we come to pivotal passages, the most pivotal passage of them all, we come to these essential passages with. Humdrum spirits. We read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Are you kidding me? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. That's pretty fascinating stuff because normally, if there is nothing, you don't get something out of nothing, right? When you read, Exodus 14, and the people of Israel went into the midst of of the sea on dry ground. You know what just happened? There was a body of water, and it was folded up, and now we have doors of water, if you will, and there's dry ground. It's not mud, it's dry ground, and people are walking through. Enemies in the front, water in the back. How are we going to get through? can't get through. You can't get through water. Guess again. They walk through. i just reading the fall of Jericho this morning. The fall of Jericho. We know this story. People walk around Jericho once a day for six days, and then on the seventh day, seven times. Boy, you guys do know that if you just walk around, that's not going to, like, destroy a city, right? If you just Blow a trumpet—that's not just going to destroy a city, right? Just by sound. You do know how marvelous these stories are, don't you? Or with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down one thousand men? A, the jawbone of a donkey, Samson. How'd you get that donkey's jawbone? Did you kill the? Did you kill it first? And what'd you do with it? Did you, did you split it in two. Did you have one, you know, part of the jawbone on one hand and one on the other, and? How'd you hack away? How many were coming at you at once? Was it all a thousand at the same time? Was it a steady flow? Why not just use a more traditional weapon, like a spear? Why a job of a donkey? What's that all about? This is fascinating stuff. Of course, Jamgar. Ox go, 600 Philistines. How How can you not love that stuff? You consider the life of Elijah. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Oh, that was nice. He went up to heaven by the whirlwind. Chariots of fire! Are you kidding? You can't make this stuff up. No, you can't, but God does. This is real history. This is marvelous history. Elijah was, and then he wasn't. People don't go to heaven in a whirlwind, normally. We die. Before they came together, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now I know pretty much anyone has the capacity for pregnancy these days, as the world would say, and so that might not seem so marvelous. But if we get on board with what God is saying and with nature, with His creation, how we are to ex- what we are to expect of, you know, pregnancy, then this really doesn't happen. That a, a woman who does not know a man is suddenly pregnant. And by the Holy Spirit. This is scandalous. This is marvelous. And we're just gonna read it. Mary was found to be with child, the Holy Spirit. Interesting. And then we move on to the next verse. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. It was very large. That sounds like an understatement, Mark. It was very large. they, They couldn't move this thing. Stone had been rolled back. How'd that happen? This is incredible stuff. It is unbelievable unless our minds have been renewed that we might believe them. If You approach the scriptures with this kind of sense of wonder and marveling. I think your reading will be much more fruitful. Let us pray for renewed affections, for gospel excitement when we read. Yes, let us read big sections of Scripture at a time. And some of of the newer translations or versions have really helped us with removing chapters and verses. So you can read the Bible as a narrative, for that's what it is. You don't have to stop after the chapter. Or when that chapter concludes its verses, you can keep going. Just like you would any other book. Except this is God's book. And not Thomas Hardy's book or Agatha Christie's book. On and on and on. But it's important also to read very slowly at times. To dig deeply. To think through the massive significance of every single word in the narrative. These are not mere words on a page. These are inspired revelation to be indelibly marked on our souls. Pray for that renewed affection to see Scripture with with eyes that marvel at His revelation. We also learn from Mark through these verses, out with the old Sabbath and in with the new. It is of great significance that we learn that the resurrection took place here on the first day. What Mark and the rest of the New Testament writers show us is that Sunday is a transformed day. We, to be sure, take for granted that Sunday is the Lord's day. After all, it's been part of our practice since we've been born. But such Sabbath practice was not always the case. The seventh day was, was always the day to gather corporately for worship. And this day had been in legal and liturgical practice under Moses for 1,500 years. Of course, it was in practice before Moses, being part of the moral law of God. Keeping the Sabbath was, is always, it's for every generation, before and after Moses. But it had been legalized. It was in corporate worship for 1,500 years by the time Jesus came on the scene. Let's talk about a long tradition we knew this for 1,500 years, Jesus. And this is a tradition that wasn't created by man. This was instituted by God himself, a divine institution of the Sabbath. But Mark takes it for granted. The, the Christians in the book of Acts take for granted that they worship now on a new day. On the eighth day, on the first day of the week. There was an immediate and universal change from the day that he had risen. And so formerly the church under age in the period of Moses looked to rest. They, they they worked six days a week and they were looking towards that rest that their souls longed for. But now the church begins with that posture of rest, begins with glorifying God, and then works, begins with worship, and is fueled by the triune God to work those six days heartily unto the Lord. Now is a new creation which begets new creatures who worship on a new day, the Lord's day. We should, beloved, expect new morning mercies to accompany the new day. Now why might these mercies be said to be new every morning rather than you know, every afternoon or you know, every night, does God withhold his mercies in the evening? Say, well, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. No more mercies for you. Should have gotten up earlier. Should have asked me earlier. No. But The morning in Scripture is a time of, of hope and joy. And the evening is one of, is often one of tears and despair. Psalm 30, verse 5, weeping may tarry for the night. But joy comes with the morning. You look at Psalms 13 and 17, we see that death is compared to sleeping, but the resurrection is compared to awakening, new life. The morning is the best and sweetest time to seek God's presence, to seek His mercies, to seek His face. It's no wonder that many Christians will cover their morning time. It's because they crave new morning mercies. That's not to say that you're being faithless if you have your devotional time in the evening, okay? Or right before you go to bed. It's wonderful to read God's word as the last thing you you expose yourself to and you, you go to bed. Wonderful. It's also wonderful to begin the day leaning on the Word of God and receiving through your prayers receiving that, that grace. Those new morning mercies that God promises to give when we call upon his name. The women's discovery of the empty tomb was at the moment when darkness gave way to light. One author says they are new every morning in the sense that they will overcome even the darkest nights of tribulation that we may have to endure. The resurrection of Christ shows the overcoming of the darkest night when life seems its darkest the light of mercy rises god's face shines upon us god has made the son of creation to rise each day as a promise of daily grace god has made his only begotten son over creation to rise the lord's day morning as a forever promise of his saving grace Beloved, we have the pledge of the resurrection that mercies await our sleepy heads each day. Praise be to God. We see in verses 5 through 7, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. From these verses, we already then anticipate the young man's words, the angel's words. With the resurrection glory of these words comes the fulfillment of that psalm of forsakenness. Remember Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As you keep reading, then you will see in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. There's even resurrection and resurrection appearances and worship the end of that psalm. God spoke of the resurrection through his angelic messenger here. He says, You're looking for Jesus? He's not here. He's risen. Come, look, look at the empty tomb. There's nobody in there. But you will see him. You'll see him very soon. Go. Go to Galilee, and you will see him. It's as if he's saying there's no time to lose. Stop gawking at this empty tomb and get a move on. Go! Just just as Jesus was on a mission to Galilee, now through this angel he sends the women on one. And it is only right that these women who stuck with Jesus should be the first to speak of him. You know, when you stick with Jesus, you tend to be among those who get to see great things first. I want us to Connect the gospel word, he has risen, with gospel deed, the resurrection. Consider the angel's words He has risen, he is not here. There you will see him, just as he told you. In the history of I told you so's, this rises to the top, quite literally, with the resurrection. He said he would rise from the dead. There's no need to look in the tomb. He has risen just as he has said. We must not downplay the historical fact of the resurrection. It happened. There is no doubt about it. Though people doubt it, there really is no doubt about it. After all, Jesus said he'd rise, and his word is better than the word of anyone else. But let us not overplay the historical fact to the point of saying that on this evidence alone, we believe, just like anyone with you know, a sound reason would do when he's shown the facts. This is historical, yes, but we cannot approach the Gospels merely from an historical perspective. The resurrection is historical. If it, if it wasn't historical, then we're still in our sins, and we are of all men most to be pitied. But it is historical because it is revelational. God reveals his being, who he is in his word, through creation and providence. Providence being the unfolding of history. Of course, he reveals himself, especially through his inscripturated word. When we consider the redemptive deeds of God, as we are told to do over and over again, especially in the Psalms, this revelation from the Lord is the greatest the most climactic deed of redemption. Contrary to many claims today, the fact fact of an empty tomb and the presence of historical evidence cannot tell us that Jesus rose from the dead, but only that there was no body. That's as far as it can take us. The historical fact of the resurrection then requires direct revelation from God. It requires the angel saying, he has risen, not, go ahead and figure this out. You see that there's, there's no body in the tomb. Go ahead and use your powers of logic and you will know that he has been raised from the dead. No, it requires the message from God. He has risen, just as he told you. Just as he had revealed it to you three times. Perhaps they should have then deduced, not based on their own use of power, of, of reasoning, but based on the Revelation from Christ three times. Faith is not just the, the product of historical plausibility. You just really think about it. You think about all the objections and how easily they are answered. Then we can come to this conclusion yes, he has risen. People have come to the conclusion that he has risen, but they say he has risen spiritually and not bodily we can come to different conclusions when we are faced with real evidence we interpret that evidence not neutrally and some people are even hostile to revelation remember remember lazarus jesus raised lazarus from the dead it was pretty clear lazarus was in he was in, he was dead for 3 days and on the 4th day jesus came and raised him from the dead and what did some of them want to do they wanted to kill lazarus so the fact of a, you know, a resuscitation, of a, of a rising, does not then mean a person is going to believe. There has to be this direct revelation from the Lord that is coupled with the Holy Spirit's enlightenment of their eyes, renewing their minds. And did you notice that this revelation is first and foremost to believers? It is for those who already follow Jesus. It is those who already love Christ. It is those who are already devoted to Christ, who worship him. Yes, weakly. Yes, imperfectly. But it is to these women who stuck with him. The resurrection is for us primarily. It is not something that we then reason to to convince unbelievers of. It is primarily for us. It is primarily for our hope. that Christ has conquered the grave. That he has defeated our sins. That we do have life eternal awaiting us. New resurrected bodies. The The resurrection is not something that you graduate from. Yes, I believe in the resurrection. What now? It's not something you graduate from, but something that you spend a lifetime growing from. There's no growth, there's no spiritual growth. If there's no resurrection power, back back growth. Undergirding, fueling. That's why we can say that this grace of Revelation brings more growth. Jesus has gone to Galilee, the gospel's old stomping grounds, if you will. This is where it all began with Peter, when he and his brother Andrew were fishing alongside the Sea of Galilee. It was then and there that Jesus called Peter to himself. It was then and there that Jesus made him a promise. I will make you become a fisher of men. But you see in this text, the angel says, go, tell his disciples and Peter. The angel doesn't say, go tell the disciples and gives gives all their names. Go to the disciples and Peter. Especially Peter. Make sure Peter knows. Make sure Peter hears. Why? Because that promise from Jesus to Peter, I will make you become a fisher of men, that promise was threatened by Peter's thrice denial. The thanks be to the Christ that his promise did not depend on Peter, but on Jesus. Not Peter, you will make yourself become a fisher of men. Not, you know, I'm going to put in... I'm going to put in 90%, and you're going to put in the last 10. I will make you become a fisher of men. You're certainly not a fisher of men right now, but I'm going to make you one. And we don't, you get a, a bigger picture of the restoration of Peter in John, in John's gospel towards the end. But Christ will most assuredly restore Peter to surface. He most assuredly will make good on his promise. Christ never fails in his promises, always fulfills them. The resurrection, then, is the basis for going and growing. The fact of Jesus' resurrection meant for these women the need to go and tell the disciples. There is likewise for us no reason to go and tell anyone if Christ has not truly been raised. I don't know why you're even here if Christ hasn't been raised. Go do something else on Sunday. Paint the town red. You don't need to be here worshiping Jesus if he's dead. You don't need to tell anyone about Jesus. If he was just a, a moral teacher, said some good things, he showed, showed love while he was on the earth, but, you know, he's, we miss him, but he's not here anymore because he's dead. The fact of Jesus' resurrection meant the restoration of the disciples' walks with Christ. There is likewise for us no reason to hope in being more like Christ if he is dead and in the grave. What are you doing here, offering, or trying to get these means of grace you know, pumped into your spirits to be more like Jesus if he's gone, if he's dead? Your presence here, though, Tells me that you think he's alive. Amen. Because he's risen. Stones rolled out. No body in the tomb. Because Jesus is on mission. Women, go, go see Jesus. He's alive. Just like he told you. And we likewise. We go. We have spiritual life from Christ, the life-giving spirit. Let us then, with renewed, indeed, resurrection vigor, go forth and grow in fruitfulness. Let us go to the house of the Lord each resurrection Sunday. And by that I mean every Lord's Day. Every single Lord's Day is resurrection Sunday. Every single Lord's Day is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of the Lord. Let us also walk into the office each day with that abundant resurrection life that cannot be quenched by the doldrums of the world or by the temptations of the evil one. Let us wake up with new resurrection mercies to care for our children. Christ is alive, and He, by His Spirit, is giving you strength to minister to your own children. To be a way to give them new mercies every morning. Let us not despair when we sin, but remember the sweet mercies of Jesus, whose resurrection conquered all our sins. Let us with each day remind ourselves to walk in the light as He is in the light. And let us do all of this with godly fear, something that we see in verse 8. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This young man in the tomb, we know, is an angel who appears like a man. Matthew calls this person an angel. We also have to ask, what kind of man is just going to be kicking it in a tomb, just hanging out in a tomb? That's a Trying to get out of the rain or something? That doesn't make any sense. It's not a place to hang out. It's as if the young man, the angel, is waiting for someone. That he might send them out. He knows these women. He knows why these women came. They came to look for the body of Jesus. And in typical angelic fashion, he is sent by God to give them a message. The reaction is exactly what we see in most encounters in the Bible when people Face angels. They are afraid. They tremble. It's not a casual thing to come in contact with an angel. It's terrifying. That's why this angel begins, as many angels do when they see humans, they say, do not be alarmed. Do not be afraid. Just kind of a side note, if, if this is how people act to angels. Okay. There should be a bit more a lot more uh, reverence for the triune god. Let us not take lightly that we come to god in worship. He is no angel. He created the angels. Terrifying creatures. Oh but god is an all consuming fire. Much more terrifying in his majesty, in his holiness, in his love. His patience. His women leave, afraid, astonished, with trembling hearts. They're dumbstruck. Fear had had grabbed hold of their hearts and their voices. And they didn't do what that woman at the well had done in John four. I remember when Jesus, after Jesus encounters her. She leaves, and she then tells all of those in her town what Jesus said about her. He said everything. He told, me, he told my life story to me. It's not what we have here with these women. These women say nothing to anyone. They had quite the encounter, didn't they? Their spirits and bodies had the shakes. They're wondering, what just happened? Jesus is not in the tomb. We had this encounter with an angel. Scared us. And he tells us to go and find Jesus. Pierced hearts. This is what happens to those who are struck by God's glory, by God's grace. With eyes open and hearts aflame, we say with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn with us? While he talked with us on the road, did our hearts not burn within us as you read about Christ in his word? The fine Methodist preacher John Wesley recalls his struggle to feel the vitality of faith in Jesus, and he grew in despair as he sought assurance of Christ's love, all to no avail. And then one day, one night at about 8:45 p.m. at a meeting in Aldersgate, someone was reading from Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. Prefaces, I guess, can be pretty important. Read the preface, and Wesley recounts while he was describing the change which God worked in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me. What an effect the word of God had on his heart. The word of God does not have an effect just on our intellect, renewed minds in that way, or even on our wills. We act in compliance with God's word, but with our affections. Their feelings. When Peter finished preaching at Pentecost, we're told that those who heard it were cut to the heart. Gospel fear changes lives. The living word of God that cuts through the division of joints and marrow will pierce hearts deeply to the core, that these hearts will be so astonished by grace that their lives will never be the same. Oh, pray that your heart will be pierced deeper And deeper by the awe inspiring, marvelous Word of God. Pray that the hardened hearts of your family, friends, and neighbors will be so smitten by the one who was stricken, smitten, and afflicted that they turn to Him in worship. Pray that you will lead your lives in a way that is daily amazed by grace so amazing. Pray that you will walk in obedience in the fear of the Lord that as the Lord unites your heart to fear his name, your faith will overcome the world. With the fear of Jesus, let us stare the threats of the evil one in the face and ride out in battle for the glory of the King, our risen Lord. Let's pray. As a reconciled Father, take us to be your children and give us your renewing spirit to be in us a principle of holy life, and light, and love, and your seal and witness that we are yours. May he turn our will to the ready obedience of your holy will. Fill us with love to you and our Redeemer, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.